Here's the first statement I have in my notes. I'm just going to fire away. If you want to have a comfortable Christian life, you might have and you might find a comfortable life, but you probably won't have a Christian life. Welcome to church. If you're looking for a comfortable Christian life, it really is an oxymoron. We're either looking to follow Christ or we're looking to follow comfort. It's really one or the other. A true Christian is a life modeled after the life of Jesus. That's what a Christian is. It's a little Christ. It's a follower of Jesus. It's someone who has been made and is being made more and more like Jesus because we have new life in him. We've been made new, and, and we're following Him, and He's justified us, and He's sanctifying us, and, and there's a day coming when, he, when we'll be glorified in Him. And, and so, if we're following Jesus, then our life is going to start looking a lot like Jesus, more and more and more. Jesus was homeless. He was not comfortable in the way that we think. He didn't even have a pillow on which to lay His head at night. Jesus suffered. He was slandered, he was mocked, he was rejected, he was persecuted, and he died at the hands of the very people that he created and that he came to rescue and save. The Christian life, the Christ life. Jesus never looked for his own gain. He just looked to pour out, to give. To love, to care, and to serve others. But we have this kind of this theme going on, and we'll just say it because we all are around it, and maybe some of us have, have bitten of this forbidden fruit, whatever we want to call it, and that is we, we have this feeling like, like that, that Christianity means that we get to have the kind of life that we've always wanted to have, like even before we were Christians, like finally, I've got Jesus, and so now my problems are going to go away. My trials are going to go away. My pain's going to go away. The pressure's going to go away. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm finally going to have a comfortable life because I have Jesus. I'm going to have, as, a, as somebody has coined the term, I'm going to have my best life now. My best life now, comfort, wealth, acceptance, success, maybe even some influence, social media influence, whatever it might be. But then you read the Bible, and then you realize that Christian life isn't supposed to be easy. Jesus himself promised his followers, are you a follower of Jesus? Okay, he promised you trouble. Yeah, that's who you're following, the one who then promised you trouble. Follow me, and I promise you trouble. And for some Christians, that trouble is great. And for many, historically, it was great, like big trouble, like real trouble. It was definitely the case for the Christians back in the year AD 64, A.D. 64. Rome was burning at this time. Rome was burning. 
People were blaming Nero, but Nero, being a politician, knows how to deflect. How many of you all know politicians know how to deflect and they know how to blame other people for things? Nero was really good at this. And so Nero was being blamed for the, the burning in Rome because he really was at fault for it. But he took the opportunity to, to, to pin it on the Christians. And so the Christians became the scapegoat. And when that happened, Christians became public enemy number one. And everyone hated Christians. And everyone celebrated when Christians were persecuted. And so what was going on? Nero decided to really take advantage of this. And so he began to publicly execute those who refused to renounce their faith in Christ. He actually put them, if you see the picture back here, he put them in the Colosseum and in other public places where he would then have savage animals come and, and, and eat them alive in front of others for entertainment. He also liked to crucify Christians. He would tie them to stakes, pour pitch, tar pitch on them, and light them on fire. And they would be used, Christians burning would be used as the lighting for his crazy evil parties that he would have in his gardens. Christianity, following Christ. And it was during these brutal persecutions that Peter wrote this letter, the first letter, 1 Peter. And he wrote a letter to the church, and it's primarily to the Christians that were not actually in the city of Rome, but in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey area. But the persecution was already beginning to reach them. It was hitting every area of the Roman Empire. And so that's the backdrop. That's what's going on behind the scenes. That's the audience. That's, that's the, the context of the letter we're going to look at today. And that's the letter of 1 Peter. So welcome back to Mission 27. We're going through the 27 books of the New Testament. How would the church today react to real persecution? I mean, I don't think we have to look very far. We just have to look at how we're reacting right now to whatever it is that, that society is, whenever they push back on us. Just look at how we've reacted over the years in my lifetime alone. How have we reacted to a society that says, ah, we don't want, we, we don't want prayer in the Bible in, in public schools? How have we reacted when society said, ah, we're going to redefine marriage. Where was the church, by the way, on that? Yeah, a few of us said a few things, but what was going on? Oh, we don't want to ruffle any feathers, man. No big deal. Do you know that there have been nationwide right now more abortions since the overturning of Roe v. Wade than there were before? Like, not total, but like, like percentage-wise and, and, and numbers-wise. And, and it's, it's still happening, is what I'm saying, on our watch. How is this happening? Where's the church? Where are our voices? We have our children that are being indoctrinated 
into crazy gender confusion and dysphoria to the point of disfiguring their bodies and, 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 and irreversible. There are states, I was just over in California. California is about ready to pass a law that says that they will take your child away from you if you do not affirm their gender transition surgery. They'll take your child. That's probably going to pass. But hey, we're comfortable. We're comfortable. I mean, you, you tell Christians, I, there are still Christians that shop at Target. And maybe some of you right now, don't raise your hand. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. But that's like the lowest hanging fruit in the history of lowest hanging fruit in the history of the world. To say no to a company that's going to promote all of this evil all over our children and your neighbor's children and the generations that are coming. And we can't stop shopping at a store because we like that store. What's the church going to do when real persecution comes? Y'all, I subscribe to the Voice of the Martyrs email. Not because I like reading about Christians getting persecuted. I can't stand it. It stirs me up. It bothers me. But I do it just so that I make sure I understand that persecution is like real. Eritrea right now, in the country of Eritrea, it's big time happening. A lot of other countries as well. That's just one that's a hotbed right now of persecution of Christians. Like, like, like Not like don't shop at that store, but like... Your kids and, your, and your, your family aren't coming home at night because they're Christians. Pastors imprisoned, killed because they're preaching the gospel. Man, I just wanted to go to church today and hear a happy message. This is a happy message, y'all, because the gospel of Jesus is a happy message. This is called good news. This is good news. This is good news. All right, so we're in 1 Peter. It was written to a church that was beginning to experience a lot of persecution. The interesting thing about Peter's letter, when you read it this week, which I pray that you read this letter this week, the whole thing, piece of cake, piece of cake, again, low-hanging fruit, easy. And when you read this letter, what you're not going to see is Peter telling Christians how to escape persecution. Y'all, this is how you get out of it. This is how you escape it. No, what you're going to read is you're going to read a letter to a church that's dealing with persecution and Peter telling them how to endure it, how to be the people of God in the middle of hell breaking loose all around them. Peter doesn't tell them to focus on some sort of rapture that rescues them before any persecution comes to them and gets them. No, because the persecution was already there. It was like end times was already happening. Look at those folks right there. Where's the rapture? No, it was the animals that were there. Y'all, what are we thinking about? What should we be prepared for? Being rescued or being the people of God? Right here, right now, enduring, dealing with whatever it is the world's going to throw at us and walking through it as Christ would walk through it. 
Jesus is coming back, and we're excited for that. And if you're not excited for that and you don't think about that often, like at least weekly, I want to encourage you to think about it often. Think about it often. It'll encourage you, even in the midst of all the junk going on. It will be a hopeful, encouraging factor in your life. But Peter doesn't say, hey, here's, there's a rapture coming. Don't worry about any of this stuff. No, what Peter's message is is remain faithful. Don't look for the rescue. Don't look for the rapture. Look to remain faithful in the midst of hell breaking loose. Peter teaches us how to live in a world that's becoming hostile to Christianity, how to live in an anti-Christian society. And y'all, we're in it right now, but we're just we're not we're not in the kind of persecution that this early church in AD 64 was dealing with, but we're still we're in an anti-Christian society right now. Look around you. Look at what's happening in our world today. It's not the way of God. It's not the way of Christ. It just isn't. So how are we going to live? How are we going to respond to the level of, of quote-unquote suffering or persecution? I can't say that we're dealing with a lot of suffering and persecution right now, but how can we deal with an anti-Christ kind of world that we're, we're waking up to every day, even right here, right now? And how can we do it when we actually have freedom and a voice and an ability to do something about it that these Christians didn't have? All right, listen to this great introduction from Peter. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you think a church going through persecution needed to hear this truth, be reminded? Yeah. And he continues. And he says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You might not see it on this earth, but it's kept in heaven for you. It's a promise. It's been done. It's been finished. We sang about it earlier. The cross has spoken. The cross has spoken. And it's for us who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Peter's opening up and he's saying, so salvation is ours in Christ. I'm yelling, aren't I? I can't hear myself. I'm sorry. I think I'm yelling right now. <laughs> Peter starts, he says, so salvation in Christ is ours, church. Salvation is ours. But then he says, but so is suffering. Even if for a little while. Salvation is ours. But so is suffering. Peter wasn't always a strong follower of Jesus. How many of you know that? How many of you read your Bibles? You understand that, right? 
I mean, the dude denied Christ three times, like the night that, that Christ was betrayed, right? Peter was originally called Simon. The name Simon means reed, like, you know, a, a little plant, like a reed. But then something happened. Jesus saw something different in this man at some point, right? Y'all remember that, upon this rock. And he changes this guy's name from reed to rock. So, like, he's the original, the rock. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got the, anyway, I don't know if Peter was bald like that and buff like that, but, but Peter went from the reed to the rock. See, before Peter met Jesus, he was easily swayed. That's what a reed is. It's easily swayed. But after time, after time with Jesus, he became immovable. His foundation became solid. He went from denying Christ to dying for Christ. Think about that. And is, 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 can that be said about your life? Have you found yourself going from being somebody who's kind of easily swayed and, man, you know, people say this, people say that, people might say this about me, this might happen, I don't know, what way is the wind blowing? Have you kind of moved away from that and, like Peter, found your footing on the rock of Christ and said, no, I'm not going to be swayed anymore? I'm not going to be moved by all the noise in this world and all the pressure and all the wokeness and all the other stuff going on because I stand on Christ Jesus. Peter went through that, and he's calling the church to that, even in this letter. So we're finally to point number one. Standing strong for Jesus involves the call to holiness. This just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Persecution, suffering, and the call to holiness. You know, often as followers of Jesus, um, I mean, we can do this, and, and I've been guilty of this myself. We, we can use the circumstances of life, the disappointments of life, the hard days, you know, that we can run into from time to time. Sometimes we can use those hard situations as excuses for sin. Excuse for not living for the Lord and not doing the next right thing. We can use hard times as an excuse for retreating from the things of God. We can use hard times as an excuse for self-medicating instead of turning to Jesus and walking with Him through it. And Peter doesn't take that approach with these soon-to-be persecuted Christians. He, he instead calls them to holiness. He's like, it's going to be rough for a while here. Life is going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of bad days, a lot of hard days. We're seeing it in Rome, and, and you're, you're already starting to see it, and you're going to see more of it. That's just what's going on right now. But, but I want to call you to not just self-medicate and just try to make it through and, 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 and hope you come up on the other side, you know, uh, okay, unscathed. No, I want to call you to something else. I want to call you to another. I want to call you to holiness. In the midst of this, I want to call you to holiness. And he says in verse 13 of chapter 1, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. In other words, think about Jesus when you're going through the hard stuff. Think about Jesus when you're going through the hard stuff. And then verse 14, as obedient children, 
Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So what's your initial gut reaction to that, that call? Be holy. Hey, be holy. What, what, what's your initial gut reaction? I mean, I, I think often our initial gut reaction is, ah, uh, I don't know about that. That whole be holy thing. Do we push back from that or do we lean into it? We kind of push back from, oh, that holy thing, man, that seems like a lot of work and that seems hard. Or do we go, hey, I want to lean into this. I want to lean into holiness. Holiness means to be set apart. That's what it means. So Peter's saying, be set apart as Christ is set apart. Be set apart from this world just as Christ is set apart from this world. Be different from the world. And I'm going to tell you what, it shouldn't be hard today for Christians to be different from the world. It shouldn't be. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I go out to eat or get out in the big bad world, which, which I do every day, I mean, some of the language I hear is atrocious. The foul language of this world that's, that's now accepted and you hear it in places that you never, ever would have heard it before. It's just the way of the world. It's how the world talks. It's like their vocabulary went down to about six to eight four-letter words and that's all they know. That's how they can express themselves. That's as, that's as much as they got in them. Our world is sexualized, greed, selfishness, all the confusion, all the, all the crazy stuff. But I'm going to tell you what, I think the church still looks too much like the world. Just look at the divorce rates. The divorce rate of heaven would be 0%. The divorce rate of this world is 50, and that's basically the divorce rate of the church. The church, sadly, looks, I think, too much like the world, more like the world than, than Jesus most of the time. We look and act like Babylonians instead of being salt and light, instead of being set apart and being holy. We've fallen for this lie. It's a lie, and many churches have taught this. And I'm, I'm praying that finally everybody's opened up their eyes and realized that this approach was not the right approach. And that is, we, don't, we should not look like Babylonians just because we live in Babylon. And we don't have to. We don't have to speak the foul language of the world to live in the world. And I'm, I'm telling you, when we adopt the ways of the world and start looking more like the world, we become less and less useful for the kingdom of God. Amen. And we become less and less attractive even to the world. Why do they need more of what, they've already, what they already have? 
It's like that woman that, that Velva got to minister to on Sunday. She didn't need more of what she already had. She needed the world. She needed, to, I mean, Jesus. She needs somebody to come in with something other than the world and bring the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this world. That's what she needed on that day. That's what this world needs, not more of the same. So we're called to be holy, set apart, different. And when, when people are tired of the same old ugliness of the world, they can open up their eyes and they go, there's somebody different. There's somebody that's, they don't talk like, like all my buddies talk. They don't, they don't think that way. They, 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 they talk and act and think and process differently. What's up with them? They're set apart. Holy as he is holy. Holy as he is holy. I want to encourage all of us. I'm talking to myself too. Because here's the deal. When you're around foul language, I'm going to, I'm going to harp on this one just a little bit, okay? When you're around foul language, you start to pick it up. That's why it's so important who you hang out with. You will become like who you hang out with. You just do. Um, back in the days when we had technology business, mostly Christians, a lot of Christians there working it. And a good working environment. We sold to a company out of Chicago. Company comes in. All of a sudden, it's the F word. Every other word, it's what it sounded like to me. It was like always, always, always. It was pathetic. It was horrible. But you know what? It got inside of me. Because I heard it so much. And one day it came out. I was talking. I was upset at home. And the word came out of my mouth front of my wife, I think maybe even to my wife. You want to talk about, that's pathetic. Y'all be careful. We don't need to be talking like the world. We need to be talking the language of heaven, not the language of this world. We need to be talking the language of the kingdom of God, not the language of the kingdom of this world. So let's hold each other accountable. Let's call each other out of that stuff and into talking like Jesus. Let's do that. Let's be set apart. Here's why holiness is not only our calling, but it's also totally possible. Peter continues, verse 18, he says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. Y'all, to believe that it's impossible to walk in holiness, to believe that it's impossible to be set apart, to be different than this world, to actually be sanctified by Christ Jesus, to believe that that's not possible is to denigrate the blood of Christ Jesus. Just is. To think lowly of the blood of Christ and what he did on the cross. Because God's word says, be holy as he is holy. And he just said, hey, I made a way for you to do that. I didn't purchase that ability and I didn't purchase you just with gold and silver and the, the stuff of this world. But I did this with my own blood. I did this. I went to the cross for you. 
I went to the cross for a church that would be set apart, for a people that would be different than this world. Be holy as I'm holy. I've given you everything you need for that. Follow me in it. That's the word of the Lord. So ask yourself, are you looking more and more like Jesus or are you looking more and more like the world? Are you talking with the language of heaven or with the language of this world? Are you interacting with people like just another another hopeless, hurting person? Or are you interacting with other people with the hope of Christ Jesus and the word of the Lord? And the compassion and the love and and the power of God moving in and through you. Let's be who we are. Say what we know and give what we have. Let's be the church. Let's be those who have embraced what Christ has done for us and are walking in it. We're still learning. We're still growing. But we're moving forward with Christ and in Christ. Point number two. We're walking through this struggle of life and the persecution. We have a new family identity. A new family identity. Peter takes the realities of God's people of the Old Testament. He takes the realities of, of, the, of the Israelites and he applies them to Christians. Remember, we've been grafted in and we are now part of God's family, his people. We've been grafted in through Christ Jesus. The church has not replaced the people of God, we become part of the people of God through the work of Christ Jesus. So the New Testament church, we're the people of the new exodus. We're the people that are journeying through the wilderness of this broken world who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who is our ultimate Passover lamb. The Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ, and we're walking with the very one who fulfilled those. We're people of the new covenant, the new temple, the the temple of God himself. The Holy Spirit is now within us, within the people of God, within the church, built on the foundation of Jesus. We're a new kingdom of priests serving God as his representatives, and that's what Peter wants to make sure this persecuted church understands in this broken world. And so Peter says this to the church in 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you... He's talking plural here. That word is, that you is plural. He's not talking about each one of you just individually like we're all little islands. But he's talking about us, the church. You, the church. You, the body of Christ. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. Somebody need to hear that today. Your God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once, check this out, once you were not a people. How many of you understand that? There was a time, and you weren't. We, were, we weren't a people of God, that's for sure. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I hope you never think of the church as just a club, like it's just a group of like-minded people that I get together with. I like to be around. We like to sing the same kind of songs. 
we're fans of the same person or whatever it might be. Man, don't, I hope you don't look at the church that way. Like it's just a place to, to get some more of God, consume some more truth and, 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 and encouragement. Because that's not what we are. We're so much more than that. The church is the people of God. We are God's special possession. We are God's special. Gee, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about this. You know, this world talks about how, like, the earth and the climate and all this is like God's special creation. And, and that, that's like the pinnacle of creation is, is, is like the earth and the world and whatever it might be, right? No. Read Scripture. We. His people who've been redeemed by the, by the blood of His Son, Jesus. We are His special his church, his bride. We're his special possession. That's why he sent his son. For he so loved the world. The people. To create his special possessions, the church. And he says that we're a royal priesthood. The priests of the Old Testament were representatives between God and man. That's what they would do. Back in the Old Testament days... The Holy Spirit didn't live inside of people. There was an actual physical temple. And, and there were just certain men that were allowed to actually go into the Holy of Holies and be in the actual presence of God. And these men were charged to be this go-between, between the nation, the people, and God. That's what the priests would do. They went to the Holy Holies. They went into God's presence, and they did the ministry of God on this earth. They brought God to the nation and they carried his presence to the people. And Peter is saying, church, this is your role now today. In the new covenant, this is your role now on this earth. Your role is to minister to God, first of all, offering sacrifices of praise, prayer, intimacy, knowing how to be in His presence, sit with Him, hear His voice, and glorify Him, ministering to God, and also your role, special possession, church, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, your other role is to bring God to the people, to carry His presence to our nation, to our neighbors, to bring His kingdom to be salt and light. That's why we're called to be salt and light. To bring Him, His glory. To bring reconciliation. You know that we have the ministry of reconciliation. That's what Christ came. He brought the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling men to God. And He has given us, the church, His special possession, the royal priesthood, that same ministry of reconciliation. And how do we do that? By bringing the gospel of Jesus to people. Because that's how man is reconciled to God. Through Christ. So we complain often about how jacked up our world is. And it's pretty messed up. But are we spending time doing these priestly duties? Are we being the royal priesthood? Are we doing our job? Are we being who we are, saying what we know? Are we giving what we have? Are we intentionally ministering unto the Lord? 
Are we listening for His voice? And then are we bringing Him? Are we bringing Christ? Are we bringing the gospel into our broken world? Are we being that royal priesthood that we are called to be? If we don't do it, ain't nobody doing it. Nobody. That's us now. That's us. And Peter's telling this church to remember this role in the midst of the very people that they're called to go and minister to and be that go-between and, and bring God to, to the very ones that are persecuting them. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? The very ones persecuting him, hanging him on a cross. He's being their priest, and he's making a way for them. So what does all this look like? How does Peter tell us to live this out? Point number three, living for Jesus in an anti-Jesus world. So this is basically the, the second half of chapter two all the way through the first half of chapter four when you're reading 1 Peter. And Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, like Nero was, right? Nero was accusing the Christians as being the problem, the scapegoat. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Peter's saying to the Christians, look, even though the world is throwing mud at us, we don't throw it back. They're throwing mud at us, and it's not right. It's wrong. But we don't play their game. I grew up where my mom would say, two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make a right. When the world calls us homophobic, racist, calls us women haters, by the way, that's the pot calling the kettle black. That's exactly what the world is, is all of those things. It's the exact opposite thing that Jesus was and that the church is. We're none of those things. But when the world calls us those kinds of names, what do we do? We take the high road. What do we do? We aren't rude on social media. We aren't. We aren't snarky. We aren't. We do the next right thing. We do the next Jesus thing. We post what Jesus would post. Not what the world would post with a Christian, you know, slant to it or something like that. It's not what we do. 1 Peter 2.17 says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, showing respect makes sense. So does love in church people. Although some church people are hard to love, I get it, you know. Maybe I'm one of those, but anyway, but I get that. But honoring the emperor, Peter says in the middle of this, this is the emperor that is, that is using Christians as torches to, to, be, to light his garden parties. And he's saying, honor the emperor? He must not know Joe Biden. No, this is Nero. Honor the emperor. We have to abstain from evil. We have to call evil out. We have a responsibility to defend the weak and the fatherless, as Scripture says in Psalm 82. We, we have a role to be salt and light. We have a job to say, hey, this is wrong. This is evil. We need to stop it. But in the process of fighting for righteousness and, and having nothing to do with the fruitless seeds of darkness, but exposing them in the process of that, we cannot become mockers. 
I'm preaching to myself, y'all, making sure we all hear this right now. We cannot fall for the bait and become the very thing that this world is. We can't. Mocking our president, our VP, frankly, that would be easy. But Jesus didn't take the easy route, and he's not calling us to take the easy route. We're not called to be mockers. We've got to stop it. And you know, we're about to enter into an election year and all that kind of stuff. Y'all be careful. Be careful. Jesus is reading your posts. Just saying. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's take the high road. Let's be Christians. Let's call out darkness. Let's call evil what it is. Let's not put up with it. But let's not become mockers in the process. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. In other words, we were called to be a blessing and then to be blessed. That's a pretty good deal. We were called to be a blessing. You know, that's what, that's what the Israelites were. They weren't blessed at the exclusion of everyone else. The Israel nation, the Israelites, the Jews, were blessed to be a blessing to every other nation. Christians, we're not blessed at the exclusion of the world. We are blessed to be a blessing to this world. That's why we're blessed. To be a blessing. And if we repay evil with evil, we forfeit God's blessings. That's what I'm reading here in 1 Peter. We're operating in the flesh. God won't back you up when you're operating in the flesh. Not going to do it. Not going to bless you for that. So, let's do it Jesus' way. Let's resist evil, same way Jesus did, by showing generosity to his enemies. And let's repay evil with blessing, even to our enemies. That's the hard way, but that's the Jesus way. Finally, point number four, as we land this thing. Still clogged ears from the landing on Friday, but anyway, we're going to land this message here. Point number four, our future hope. And what's interesting is when we read about our future hope, um, (laughs) most of the time Peter's talking about our future hope, they're still suffering. It's part of our future, but it's all unto something. It's all unto the promises that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's go to 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Do we do everything we can do to avoid suffering? I believe if we do, we're going to miss the joy of the Lord. We should do everything we do to follow Christ, to walk in His ways, to bring His kingdom. And in that, we will find joy. It says in Chapter 5, verse 8, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Peter tells this persecuted church, he says, resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind 
of suffering. I just feel called to point something out. Peter tells the church to resist the devil. He doesn't tell the church to shout the devil down. He doesn't tell the church to have a conversation with the devil. He doesn't tell the church to remind the devil who they are. Don't mess with me. I'm a child of God. Y'all don't give the devil even that moment of your time. Resist him. And you have everything you need to resist the devil. You have the grace of Christ Jesus. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. We have all we need for life and godliness. Peter says that as well. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. Standing firm in your faith. And so we resist and we remain faithful to Jesus. And I want to end with verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5. Let's all stand up as I read this last passage. Peter writes... And the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you, and he'll make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Maybe you don't feel strong, firm, and steadfast right now. Maybe you feel like everything is just pounding you down right now. You feel the weight of the world on you. Being wrongly accused. Painted in a bad light. People are lying about you. They're cheating you. Somebody isn't respecting you or honoring you taking you for granted, whatever it might be. After you suffered a little while, Jesus himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Lean into him. Trust him in whatever it is you're going through, good, bad, ugly, whatever it might be, trust him. Get in His presence. Spend time in prayer. Listen for His voice. Do His work. Share the gospel. Minister to others. Pray for others. Be used by the Holy Spirit to release the kingdom of God into other people's lives. Do the work of the kingdom. Be part of the royal priesthood. And watch God move in and through your life. God's ways are good. 